Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. If I sound a little peaky this week, that is because I've been a little peaky. (laughs) I'm on day eight of isolation after contracting COVID. I am double vaccinated and I think there was a naivety there in me thinking, well, if you get COVID, it's grand when you're vaccinated. And I was kind of shocked by how heavy it was. I was licked by it and um, I'm coming out of it now, still doing loads of sleeping and resting. My family have it as well, so it's kind of chaos at home. It feels kind of like that first lockdown. I'm not really able to read, for you know, the brain fog is set in, but I am able to watch music videos and I've been doing that a lot, especially last week with my four-year-old who was off school. It was kind of the only thing we could agree on. Nice, short, succinct, fun music videos. And one of the songs I've been loving so much listening to, which I thought I should tell you about because of the name of the band, is Change. It's Luther Vandross's old band. And there's a song specifically called The Glow of Love, which is just the most uplifting, beautiful song. So yeah, do yourself a favour and listen to Change, The Glow of Love today. And I think you won't regret it. I hope not anyway. So let's talk changes. We've had such a kind of vast array of guests on the series so far, from the renegade artist Steve McQueen to, you know, Hassan Akkad, who entered this country as a refugee and became one of our most prominent activists. There's also been big high profile names, you know, that you know and that you recognize, Jimmy Carr. Perez Hilton and of course that deeply soulful and spiritual conversation I had with Yeba for episode two but of course one of the things I like to do every series on changes is to invite people on who don't normally have a voice who aren't heard regularly in a public sphere and that is definitely true of Lisa Nealon and her story now you do not know Lisa Nealon if you walk past her on the street you likely wouldn't think twice And even if you did stop to speak to Lisa now, you would have very little idea of the turmoil that she has been through in her life. She's bright, she's warm, she's so talkative. But for years, she lived a very different life. That's because she suffered from a debilitating stutter. Now, it's really likely that you've encountered someone with a speech impediment or with a stutter before. Perhaps you've got one yourself. Something like one in a hundred of us have them. If you're one of the lucky people who can speak fluently, you probably haven't given that much thought to how something like a speech impairment can affect the way you move through the world. For Lisa, a stutter left her struggling with a really, really diminished existence. She wasn't able to travel, to study, to do the work she wanted to do. And things got really desperate right around the time that her husband left and she was left to look after her daughter alone. It makes me enormously happy to say that was not the end of Lisa's story and you're going to hear about the unbelievably inspiring changes that she was able to make from that point of desperation. But I wanted to start the conversation before any of that and even before the stutter that ended up dominating so much of her life because that's the thing, there was a before. Lisa didn't always stutter and in fact her earliest memories, she's pretty much how you hear her now, a chatty outgoing person but that all changed when she was eight years old. Enter the podcast, Lisa Nealon. I was very outgoing. I had lots of friends, live in a really small village, so everybody was out on the streets after school and playing. Yeah, yeah I was, I think I was good fun. 
I always felt as though I was, and I like to have good fun. Yeah, I loved Newcastle United. Used to go with my grandfather to all the games from a really young age, and yeah, just a pretty easy going, sort of friendly kid, I would say, if I had to describe myself. And then talk us through your childhood change. Yes, so from the age of eight, I developed a stammer. So I was fluent up until eight and then had an accident which left me when I woke up in hospital with a stutter. So that was a massive change for me because I'd been free to communicate normally as a fluent speaker up until that point and then suddenly had to adapt to life being really fearful of speaking that's how I remember it and still remember it is the fear of being seen as somebody who isn't normal you know who can't get the words out and so it took a lot of adapting I would say more as a kid for different reasons it's changed over the years but as a kid I think we struggle sometimes to communicate anyway but with a stutter when you just can't get those words out it was really quite difficult to keep with the same friendship group without them noticing and a teacher picked up on it and used to copy the way I spoke which set the kids off laughing. That's awful. Yeah so things kept fueling it even more you couldn't sort of ignore it it was there and I always loved school but then suddenly you can't put your hand up when you know things anymore You, you watch other kids do that and think I knew that but just you wouldn't you wouldn't put yourself up for that ridicule so instead I think I sort of sank a little bit within myself from like around eight which you know looking back now was really quite a hard age for that to happen when you really want to be outgoing and you know eventually change schools from middle to high and it, it was tough it was really yeah. tough. Yeah. And with regards to the accident that you went through, so what happened there? And tell us about the the aftermath of kind of that waking up and that strange realisation that your mouth wasn't working with your head. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. That's exactly what happened. So it fell down some stairs, which knocked me unconscious. And basically, like I say, woke up from that with just this inability to get words out, which at first they thought was just with being unconscious and then it would take a little bit of time to fully come round from that. It could have been the shock, the said. But also it was mentioned from early on that obviously an event like that can cause a speech impediment like a stutter and that it would maybe just phase out. You know, it often does in kids. They get like a childhood stammer, but then it goes away you know, in time, but it didn't with me. In fact, in a way, it got worse as the fear around speaking fueled the stutter, if you see what I mean. So it just became worse in a way as the years got on. So what was secondary school like for you then once you went into that? That was a bit tough because once I think, you know, kids sort of look ahead, don't they? And I always wanted to stay on at school. Right. You know, I loved history, I loved English, so I had plans from a really young age. I always felt as though I was sorted in my head at what I wanted to do. And what was that? Well, I, I, re- well, I actually didn't really know, but I really loved history. So maybe history teacher, right. something around history I would have really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, 
but I loved writing and I thought about journalism, you know. But every job now in my head was I was thinking, how on earth would I do that? Because I can't communicate. So so suddenly I changed altogether. I still did well at school, but I could never have thought about staying on, doing A levels, going to uni and having the same sort of difficulties with that as I had with school. I just wanted to get out of there. Which was sad because I left I left friends behind that were doing all the things that I wanted to do. And how did it affect your friendship groups initially and then as as you grew older into your teens? Initially it didn't very much change. I had a small friendship group as a kid. And I think kids are a lot more tolerant, I think. Right. They ask questions, but they're more understanding. As kids get a little bit older, I think when the attitude starts, it sort of changes things. So for me, when I left school and left my friends behind who were doing A-levels and going on to uni, they would have just seen it as though I had went my own way, got a job on a youth training scheme with a company, and that's just how it went. But actually, I think I sort of purposely avoided meeting up with them because... As work began and things became difficult, the speech got worse. And I didn't want them to see that. I would always try and substitute words and avoid situations so that nobody saw me as somebody who had an issue. So it was a bit sad because they would have thought, oh, she just doesn't bother with us, where, in fact, I really missed them and and wanted the contact but just didn't want them to, to see who I really was. Was there anyone that you felt like you could be yourself around? To be honest, no. Mm. No, mm. not when I look back. I don't think there was anyone. Um, I worked in a typing pool for a long time because I thought it had no, you know, there would be no issues with telephones. I just had the earphones on. I would type all day and that would be it. Until one day there was a phone in the middle of the desks that and there was nobody around to answer it but me. And then they all then knew I had an issue because you have to answer it with the department you are in. I couldn't swap those words around for something I could say. So it became really obvious that I had an issue. And then the dynamics changed with that group because they're new then and I would always have to avoid that phone. So you're sort of, you're seen as a bit of a shaker or she, she avoids the phone, even though there was a reason why, you know, so... I I think every time I tried to make bonds with people, something would happen and it always was related to my speech. Um, And as much as I wanted to be friends with people and to open up, it just got more difficult, I think. Can you talk us through, because a lot of people will think of a stammer or a speech impediment, and, and they probably won't have thought through all the ways it affects a life and an existence. So talk us through just kind of how held back we know about your friendship groups we know about work but what were the other things in your life that you felt like you just couldn't start or had to avoid as a result of of how you talked so many things just you know I think as I got older just things like even asking for a coffee right you know in a coffee shop you if you don't get your words out then it takes twice as long or you maybe just wouldn't bother at all you would just completely avoid going into a store getting on public transport so before I could drive I I went to catch a bus and I always used to take a piece of paper with me 
with the name, you know, the, the destination where I wanted to go because I could never say, well, for example, if I was going into Newcastle, I could never say any N-words. So I used to have it written down and one day just didn't have the piece of paper, got to the front of the queue of the bus, nothing came out and there was people behind me and I remember the bus driver eventually just saying, you're holding things up, would you just, would you mind just leaving the bus? And um, I had a I had a young daughter at the time. And my husband, my ex-husband, had recently left us. So I remember coming off the bus and just thinking, you know, if I can't get on a bus, how on earth am I going to bring up a child on my own? And I think that was probably like the lowest point in my life because someone else was depending mm. on me, and I depended a lot on on him. But mm. then he wasn't there anymore. So. Things just took a, a bit of a nosedive. Yeah. So every time things didn't go well in life, the speech would be the first thing that would... Be affected by that. Yeah, right, right. but that's the thing I needed the most. I needed to be able to go to parents' evenings. I needed to ring the car to book it in for a service. So many things that you don't even think yeah. about that you need to be able to communicate. So just backtracking a bit to when you were, say, you know, in school, teenage, you know, you talked about the N word, not being able to say that. Was there some words that came out easily, some words that didn't? I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the more actual, the processes that you were trying to go through to get words out. Yeah, so it was quite a lot of sounds for me. Um, I think the S sounds, there was a lot of G sounds. There was an awful lot of sounds and even sounds that I thought I could say if there was fear or nerves around them, they yeah. could have turned into sounds I couldn't say either. Yeah. So with a covert stutter, you are mentally exhausted by having to think about what you're going to say before you say them. And if it was a word you couldn't say, trying to find another word in its place. So instead of Newcastle, I would say, oh, I'm going shopping to town. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of people would say here. Yeah. But I would never be able... So I was always constantly changing words around. But obviously the words you can't, like your name, I could never say my name without a struggle. So going into anything at work where you had to introduce yourself, I would they would see that I had an issue with my speech. And and did you have a way of telling people that you did that? Would would you ever say, listen, I have something... Or did you even know? Was there a diagnosis as to what you had? Yeah, I knew straight away that it was a stutter. The The self-acceptance of it is something that I didn't really learn anything about until I joined the Maguire programme, which I'm a coach on now. And one of the techniques is self-acceptance. So to minimise the fear of being seen as somebody who stutters, it's just to tell someone, you yeah. know, would just be to say to you, by the way, I've got a stutter, yeah. just bear with me, you know. I sometimes use techniques to show people. So now I would maybe slightly exaggerate a sound so that even without telling you, you would pick up on it and think she's not a fluent speaker. And that to me would reduce the fear Mm -hmm. and bring with it a level of fluency. So Mm. it's been amazing and very interesting for me to learn about. But now I'm, I'm fine with it and actually tell people all the time to reduce that fear. Listen, I'm, I'm not a fluent speaker.
So will you tell me about your daughter now? You know, when did she arrive? How old were you? And how was bringing a person into the world for you? Oh, well, I was 21. I didn't think I could have kids. So she was like the best surprise ever. And we're so close. I think because we've been, she's called Rachel, by the way. She's lovely. She's uh, made my job easy as a single parent. So we've been just the two of us since she was eight. And she would pick up on the speech as she got a little bit older and ask about it. So she was my biggest motivator for, you know, being all right with it and trying to get in control of it, I think, was, mm. you know, the, the biggest thing for me. Do you mind talking me through how you met your, well, Rachel's father as well and how that was? Because, you know, if meeting someone, falling in love with someone must have been a profound thing for you after what we've heard about what came before, you know, in terms of being isolated. Yeah, so I met Rachel's dad through a mutual friend, which made it much easier. And, you know, I could swap words, like I say, so I could actually get by just to give someone the impression that everything was actually all right. But I was quite quiet. I wasn't as outspoken as I would have wanted to in case anything, any words, you know, were a miss kind of thing. But yeah, we met and we dated for a while and we got a house within a couple of years and had Rachel and it was all life was all wonderful, which helped the speech. Okay, right. I was just going to say, so did was he aware of the speech impediment? Yeah, he, he, he was, because the more you spent with someone, the more time, they would see the times when you can't swap words, you know, when you have to give your name and address or you have to ask for a specific thing in a store. You can't change that around. So, yes, he, he was aware from really early on. And he, as a result, used to do a lot of my speaking for me. Right. And how did he react to how you spoke? And was he helpful, I suppose, when you were in struggling? Yes, I think he was, as would have been anybody that I would have been with. They would have always tried to finish sentences if I got stuck, which a lot of people who stutter don't like. But if you're in the middle of a sentence and you're struggling, (laughs) you'll accept any help. And did he get into a rhythm then? of him speaking for you? Was it was it an easy kind of crutch to kind of have him there? I can imagine it was. It was because anything that you needed to make a call, I mean, the telephone was my biggest fear. So he would have, he would have done all the calls about everything and I would have just avoided at all cost picking up a phone. So it was very useful and nice to have someone there who could just do it for you. It, it just meant you could avoid the embarrassment and the shame of not being able to do something that, you know, a kid could do. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about him leaving and you being that sole parent, single parent of Rachel and the kind of realisation that maybe you needed to get some help. Yeah, I didn't actually get help for quite a long time. I'd approached the doctor about maybe some speech therapy, but it depends on your geographical area and so on, and there was none where I was at the time. So I just really muddled through. But it was just so difficult because I wanted to take her places. I wanted to be the mum and be the person that speaks for her, not the other way around. Yeah, I was finding in restaurants and things, she was actually 
doing the ordering and doing the speaking for me. And how old would she have been? We were on our own from eight, so really from eight upwards she would yeah. have been, which isn't little, little, but you just expect to be able to order for your your own kids. Your, you should be the one sort of in control and they should be the kids. But it was in many respects, but I think, like I say, as I got, as she got older, she understood why I couldn't. And would ask about it, so she didn't. She never minded. It was just she knew that was who I was, you know. And and did you find that you were more relaxed around her? Like how how was your speaking around her? I think as she got older and a little bit more understanding, it helped it a lot. But I still didn't think it was enough. Like the experience on the bus and things happened along the way that I thought, no, I don't want to be that person. I want to be able to do anything I want. And I also wanted to show Rachel that no matter what you've got going on, if you're happy with it, and I know lots of people who stutter, and they're actually all right with it. And I yeah. think, wow, I wish I was like that. But to me, it was holding me back a lot. Mm. And it was also not something that I wanted Rachel to see me struggle with for my for her whole life so like I say she was my sort of main main little motivator from an early age so what would you say now was your biggest adulthood change that you made I would say self-acceptance definitely just to to be okay with the fact that I had a stutter but I was working on it to gain control and that was the biggest turnaround in my adult life because now nothing holds me back anymore. I'm not I'm not afraid today to speak to you. If I knew if I had a little bit of turbulence, I've got techniques to use and there's no fear behind it anymore, which is just the most lovely feeling in the world when you've spent your whole life being frightened to open your mouth. And how did you find that self-acceptance? What practical steps did you do to get there? Well, this course, which was an intensive course, sort of it deals with the physical element of a stutter. And then over the three days, it, it teaches you about the psychological as well. So the self-acceptance is part of that. Right. Talk me through this course then, the practical steps. Who decided you were going to go on it? How old were you when you did it? And how did you do it? Like, how did you contact them? So I watched a documentary all about this programme and saw the course on this documentary and thought, and a friend rang me and said, do you think that could be something that would help you? I emailed my boss at the time and said, is it something that work would support me with? And they said, yeah, that, that's no problem. They looked into it for me. It's an international programme, but there was going to be one in Newcastle the following March, I think this was the Christmas, uh, they signed me up, sorted it all out, and it was in a hotel in Newcastle. And you start on a Wednesday evening. I mean, I think I went to the door of this hotel and went back to my car like six times. I was in tears. I got to the reception at the hotel to check in. It was a residential course. I checked in and couldn't say my name. And even though I was, that's what I was there for, I still felt shame around the fact that I couldn't, you know, check in. 
Then they do a, a video of you, so the recorder just asking you questions about yourself so they can see what and is kind that, of is that video in front of people or are you on your own? Yes. Oh, so my God. In, <laughs> so that's in front of everybody who's joined on the same course. So there was about nine of us, I think, and all of the coaches that had been there themselves that come back on courses to coach newbies. So the room was pretty full, and but every single one of them has a stutter. So there's no cure for it. They may be like I am now, they've got control, but it never sort of goes away. They've got to work on it. So we did this first day video, and, you know, I had turbulence on quite a lot of the words, which is what they wanted. They wanted to see exactly what they were dealing with. And then... On the Thursday, you get into all the physical techniques. So if you hit turbulence, what kind of techniques do you attack the word with? Different way of breathing. So that's yeah. all day, 12-hour days. And how was it seeing other people struggling like you had been? It was a little bit reassuring to be with people who understood. But in the same at the same time... I think anybody who stutters would probably tell you that they've probably spent their whole life avoiding people who right. stutter because then it's in your face. So suddenly here you were watching people have the same struggle, feeling a little bit embarrassed for them that they couldn't communicate. But then in another sense, knowing you are in the right place. For the first time, I think I knew this is exactly where I'm meant to be to sort this out. Then it's a psychological on the Friday, so all the things that we could do to get rid of that guilt and that shame and and that sort of isolation. And one of the things is just, like I say, exaggerating the techniques to show people, to show it off, you mm. know, just to extend some sounds as simple as that, yeah. just so people yeah. knew you, you yeah. weren't fluent. Um, and to tell them, so by the Saturday... You go out in whatever city the course is in, the hotel's in. Yeah. And for me, it was Newcastle, and I had to to talk to 100 strangers. Oh, my goodness. With a coach with me, though, for support, and I had to use the techniques. And some contacts, we call them contacts, it was just asking people for directions. Right. And others, it was disclosing and saying, listen, I'm on a speech course this week, and... I've been challenged to tell people that I have a stutter and you are using these techniques and being fine with it. I was like, wow, this is great. This is, this is showing just who I am, but in a more controlled way. I wasn't struggling, no distortion of the face. Like you see some people do when they try and get words out just a relaxed in control person speaking. And then, we stood on a soapbox. We had to do a little speech in the middle of the, oh the main street in Newcastle on a busy Saturday. And it was nothing big. It was just my name and, you know, how this course had changed my life. And all you could see was crowds gathering around. And I just thought, when I came off there, I just thought, if I can do this, I can basically tackle anything now Hmm. and I think that's when obviously I started to think about what I could do with my voice not just for me but for other people and that's where the Samaritans volunteering came in my mind you know Hmm. Hmm. but it's a very intensive course and it's very confrontational 
you know, you're confronting something that's terrified you for me for 30 years, but actually was the best thing I could have ever done in my life. Mm. Best thing. And I can imagine just the, the physical act of saying to people, I have a stutter for the first time, you know, saying that out loud to people, to strangers must have just felt so profound. It did. And the first few times I did it on that Saturday, I actually got really upset. I'm not surprised. Because I'm yeah. a softie anyway. But I I didn't really, even though I'd gone through this course and I knew all the, the wep, you know, all the techniques I needed to know, I still a little bit of in me thought, why would on earth would you tell somebody about this? Why would you not hide this and keep hiding it? But then I kept thinking back to all the times I had struggled and the time on the bus kept coming back in my head. And the first few times of actually saying I'm a person who is challenged with a stutter, I just used to break my heart because I couldn't believe I was saying, I was telling somebody. Yeah. But their reaction which we had, you know, I had perceived for years and years as being, would be a negative one, was actually such a positive one, such a lovely one. And, you know, good on you, good on you for doing this, you know. And that used to set me off even more. Oh, God, you set me off. (laughs) Oh, God. Because it, it, it wasn't sometimes, you know, we were encouraged, don't just pick out people who will have a friendly face coming towards you. Pick out a group of youngsters. Pick out, you know, an elderly couple. Don't just go for for people yeah. that look as though they would, yeah. you know, go for, ev- go for everybody. And I think it probably took, you know, maybe half a dozen times to start and be comfortable with just, yeah, you know, this is all right. And, and every time I did it, and then knew I was someone who had a speech issue. I don't know. Speaking to them afterwards would just seem more comfortable. It was like it dissolved the fear. And I mean, someone said to me, "It's like it's as though your stutter saying to you, you know, if you don't hide me, I won't hurt you." And that really sort of hit a, hit a nerve with me. And that's exactly what it was like. Don't hide me, and I won't hurt. And it. And it just rings true. And it didn't hurt me. The more that I didn't hide it, the less it hurt me. So I've always took that away with me as well. So it's trying to take all of that, like, associated shame that you had with it and just once the shame is gone. Yeah, once the shame is gone and you're all right with who you are. And I, I guess it's probably like this for everybody who has something that they're not happy about. Sure, Once you get it out there... It's out there, you're not, it's not the elephant in the room anymore. Mm. It's out there for all to see and, oh, the, just the level of freedom that it gave me, you know, the, the psychological was as big for me as the physical, you know. I can imagine. And can you remember the first time that you, you said it and, and, and did that exercise away from the course? Like when you went back into your life... And you started practicing what you'd learned. Can you remember when that when you did that? I can. Yeah, because I left the course on Mother's Day of all days and right. met Rachel for a meal and then ordered a meal on Mother's Day. And I still feel a bit full oh, just talking. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Because 
to me, it was just like the best Mother's Day. And I still remember it now, just asking her what she wanted and and her looking at me and sort of say, that's normally what I do. Yeah. And but and and I said no, but you don't have to do that anymore. And I think she was just amazed at how I sounded, how happy how I looked in myself. Yeah. Um. And I said no, you, no, this is my turn now. I can do things like this now. And and um, we were both just so emotional in front yeah. of the. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. What beautiful moment. I know it was, and it was like I was. I was the mum that I wanted to be, and it's it might not be huge to everybody, but to me, it was you know I I, I mean I was a good mum. I've I've always put Rachel first, and I did everything right, but I really just wanted to be a mum in the sense of being able to communicate like yeah. one and being able to order that day, and especially with it being Mother's Day, I don't know there was something really really, really significant. special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Lisa, tell me then about you're coming out, you're re-energised, you're kind of inspired and feeling good about yourself. And then your first instinct was to want to give back and help others. Tell me about this whole process and, and, and what you did to do that. Yeah, so I had to work on my own speech for a little while first just to make sure that everything I'd learned was concrete and I knew what I was doing so there was an awful lot of input from coaches and so on you know daily work on it picking up that phone not avoiding anymore I had a lot of little bumps to go over with work because I had to then tell them about it this is how I'm going to sound for a little while quite mechanical and less words per breath just taking my time just till I build things up. So they were lovely. And I then sort of, as I progressed with, with the programme and my speech, I, I decided to become a coach myself because I knew that that's just instantly what I wanted to do. And then I became a, a course instructor. So I now would write a schedule for a course. They're online at the minute, but I've I've just recently done one a couple of weeks ago. So I now see people come in and with the help of coaches, see them through the process like I've been through, which mm. is the most special thing to me in the world. Yeah. And then, so I, I had done those, but that was for me. And I'd done a lot of things, started to take Rachel out different places more, um, holidayed on my own, went over to do a Maguire course in, in New York. I would never wow. get on a plane on my own with a stutter beforehand. So it was about doing everything that I would have wanted to do, but that I, I couldn't have done. So it was about cancelling everything out. And then thought, but it can't just be about me because, yeah. you know, I've had help from so many places. The incident with the bus, you know, I was really on the edge and thought, even though I had Rachel and so much lovely things. Yeah. Um, it was like the biggest low point for me and that's when I contacted Samaritans and just because I didn't really know where to turn, I didn't I didn't feel adequate to bring up um this lovely kid on my own with the issues that I had. 
So I contacted them and they were amazed and I contacted them by email because okay. I couldn't Brilliant. I couldn't speak at the time. Yeah. I hadn't done the course then. And just the lovely sort of personalised email. I always thought it would be like computerised. You yeah. knew they were from a human being. Yeah. And they knew that they were there for you and it went back and forwards for ooh, possibly a few weeks, these messages, and I just felt as though I, for the first time, had a bit of support. So yeah. then at the end of it all, I just wanted to, to give back, and I knew it would involve picking up the phone as a volunteer yeah. to answer the calls, but then I thought, no, you don't avoid anymore. You, you do what you were fearful of, and you and this is a great way of keeping things up and you know, practising because people are relying on you. So that was always mm. in my mm. head as well. So, yeah, I contacted them and asked if I, how I would become a volunteer. I was honest from the start and I said that I'd had trouble with a stutter. You know, it was in control, but it was all, a, you know, I had to practise all the time, but I really wanted to give back. Yeah, And I think it was about sort of, maybe a year of training before I started answering calls right. and now do a few shifts shifts a week with them on top of my, my normal job. And every time I pick up the phone is special. Like there's not, it's never become any less. And I think because of having the fear of always picking up a phone, being able to pick up a phone and help someone. So empowering. It takes it to another level. It just, yeah, yeah. it's everything. It's everything. It's yeah. everything more than I could ever do for money. It's it's way more than any job I've ever done in the way mm. of being paid for. It's just the thing that I love to do, you know, yeah. with with my voice. And do you ever look back, Lisa, at, you know, to those years after you had your accident as a kid? And what would you like to say to you at that age now that you're where you are? I wish I could say to her that eventually things will be all right, because yeah. at the time it just didn't feel like that. But I do often think back, not not too often, but I do think that all the people, the teacher, the bus driver... Lots of people, like, along the way that sort of mocked it sort of did, in a lot of respects, push me to where I wanted to be. So I'm at a stage where I don't look back so much at them with any bitterness or anything anymore. I actually saw the teacher not that long ago in a shop (laughs) and a part of me wanted, you know, it was like nothing had ever happened at school. And you talked to the teacher. Well, she said hello to me and I was a little bit taken aback. But obviously now she, you know, she's quite elderly. And I and I kept thinking in my head, you know, does she remember back then? To me, I, I do, because it meant probably more to me than it did to her. And I didn't get into it, but I did leave the shop, you know, and I thought that's sort of the past. And in a way, it it did cause me a lot of trouble at the time and a lot of upset, you know, but in a way, like I say, all of those people have sort of pushed me in the right direction. If I yeah. hadn't had that struggle because of their behaviour, 
would I have ever met people like I do now that are changing their life in three days? Would I ever have been sat, like, with the honour of talking to you like this? You know, all the people that I've met, um, I would never have done, you know. I wouldn't have had the relationship, maybe, with Rachel as I've got now. So I tend not to look back too much, but I do often wish for just maybe a more tolerant, kinder world. And for those listening, you know, who don't have any knowledge about people with speech impediments or have never just had the time to focus on and think about it, what do you want people to know about this condition and and the realities of living with it? And, And also, how can people help? I think, like I say, to be tolerant and to have an understanding of the level of fear that that person has from the minute they get up to the minute they go to bed will all be about speaking. So if somebody does speak to you and you know they've got a stutter or anything wrong with their speech, just to give them time, I think that would be the biggest you know, thing that you could do for them would be to give them time. As in give them time as they're talking? To speak, yeah. And just and let them know, take your time. Yeah. I've always found those the most reassuring words in the world. I still do. Yeah. It's just take your time. To yeah. me, it's just magic when I hear yeah. those words because it just yeah. reassures you a little bit that you can take your time, yeah. you know. Yeah. But just as well to not look away. I, I often think it's it's a slight maybe lack of understanding. Not everybody, only 1% of the population stutters. So why should the other 99 understand it? So, But often what they'll do is when they see that struggle, they'll, look, they'll try and look away just because it's awkward. The person who's stuttering probably is as well, though. But, yeah. but it is uncomfortable to see someone struggle. But then when you see that person look away in embarrassment a little bit, it it adds to that shame. And Lisa, how has your relationship with Rachel changed since that Mother's Day? Oh, <laughs> just in every way. I think we would have always been close, but I think it's definitely made us closer because I think there's a real level of I think she understands me on a much deeper level that she's seen me go through something and come out of the other end. Uh, She's now my biggest supporter. So if I do a course or I'm coaching someone, she really understands what that means to me, but more so what it means to them. I think our bond is definitely stronger because of it. And now we're just the closest little team. Everyone around us always says what a great little team and and we are and I think that's definitely stronger because of it yeah and what do you still want to do now that you've you know you've opened up the possibilities in so many ways I would love to go to uni and I would love to do a degree Rachel laughs I actually had her on I was going to join the uni that she was in no ma'am you cannot do that (laughs) Uh, (laughs) not not till I'm left anyway but now she's left, yeah, you just you just never know. But I always think it's never too late to, to go back and do things that you wish you had done. And I'm very much like that anyway. Like I say, travelling alone and things like that, I've already sort of done and would continue to do. But I think going back further than that and, you know, getting that degree that I would have loved then would be pretty special. So I think that's definitely on the agenda. And... Just to 
make the most of all the lost time. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being so generous with, with all of that personal stuff. I'm so in awe of your courage and your strength oh, getting, getting through you. that. Well done. Well done. Oh, thank you. My God, what a story. What a woman. I'm still in touch with Lisa on DM and I'm so happy to be acquainted with her and I'm so happy and excited for this next phase of her life. Before we go any further, I just want to say that if you were affected by any of the issues discussed in today's episode, help is out there. In the UK, you can pick up the phone and reach the Samaritans by calling 116123, or you can email them like Lisa did. We'll put info for that as well as the US alternatives in the show notes. And if you call Samaritans, you might end up speaking to Lisa. It's the most beautiful full circle story, isn't it? If you are as moved as I was, please do like, subscribe, pass it on to your pals, to your friends, to your mum, to your gran, anyone who you think that will like it and get in touch and tell me what you think as well. I'm on Instagram at Annie McManus, all one word, M-A-C-M-A-N-U-S. Predictably, there was a big reaction to my conversation with Perez Hilton last week. Some of you were unconvinced by his claims of change. Siobhan Louise said, I really get that he's trying to make amends, but he's still a mess, totally fame hungry. Others saw it differently. Christine H said it's always good, even after decades of hate, to change points of view. This guy is now aware of what he was really doing. I know I'm still trying to figure out what I make of it, but I'm glad that we did it. And it's really kind of brought a lot of important conversations to the surface. So thank you for listening if you did. Now, Changes is produced by Frank Palmer. I will be back next week with more changes. Stay well until then.